hello, and welcome back to Fugue for Thought, the podcast. I'm Alan, and we have part three, the grand finale of my conversation with Mike McCaffrey. It's um, it's actually difficult to think that this, these three parts of this conversation, actually, uh, what you're hearing, somewhat shortened took place in one enormous long stretch of conversation. Uh, We had about a five-minute break, and then we picked up where we left off. And um, I think for me, it was a Sunday evening, so it was a Sunday morning for him. We just had a bunch of time and talked about all sorts of stuff that revolved, you know, all around Haydn. Um, And so in today's conversation, um, we're talking about obviously more Haydn. Um, some of his friends, who did he hang out with on weekends when he would go partying? What was his daily routine? What about his brother? And I think perhaps most pertinently, what did Haydn do to save music? Mike didn't put it that way. It's kind of how I perceive it, but he'll talk about that a little bit later, about the critical point at which Haydn appeared and what he started doing in music that was different and how we should listen to it um, as a result. So uh, let's get started. Our conversation here picks up uh, talking about Haydn's string quartets and the kind of, you know, one of his inventions people kind of credit him with being the father of the string quartet. So we pick up with talking about those early works and go from there. Even even just to the casual listen, Opus 20, number 5, which is kind of the, the first of that set of six, blew me away. Yes. If you, if you look at the time period when these were constructed, you see that uh, Opus 9, 17, and 20 are a continuous spectrum. Uh, they began in 1769 and were completed by 1771 or 72. But but across that three or four year period, he wrote all three of those in a continuous arc. And at that time in his life, he was forty years old. Um, that's so interesting to think about. No, just because uh, Mozart, Schubert, they never lived to be forty. No, and, and here's no, and, here's Haydn, kind of you know just getting into his string quartet groove, and he's forty years old. Right, and a lot of people feel like life began at that age for him. You know, he was born in 1732, so by 1772, he was 40. And, uh, but in 1769, he told uh, Luigi Cherubini, who came to visit him in 1804 or 1805, uh, came from Paris, uh, basically to pay homage to Haydn. And, and Haydn told him that in that time, just before his 40th birthday, so he completed it by his 40th year, is what he said. He, he totally reevaluated everything he knew about music, and he, he administered a, a course of, of music learning to himself and uh, basically uh, redid the way he wrote music. And I, I think you see that in those quartets, which is why I, I say that that was his workshop uh, genre, right. what he did workshop and it was part of well here's you know here's an idea here's how it goes so yes exactly sort of thing and uh that that there's no other reason to explain those because he couldn't sell those quartets he was under contract to Esther Hasse 
he couldn't sell them. Right. And Prince had no interest in them. And uh, so, so basically you're it was looking personal. at personal. Exactly. That was his personal thing. And uh, by the time he was done with that little course of, of music instruction, he was better than he was before. And I think you see that directly expressed in the quality of those string quartets. It, well, this it was is not a question of ideas. It was a question of, of using his tools, his compositional tools. Well, it's interesting, you know, it, before I, before I had started uh, anything with Haydn, you know, a year, maybe two years ago, it was a little bit intimidating, like I said, to where do you even start? And then we've got, you know, well, we did, we did, we did Opus One. We only have sixty-two left. Um, but, but to but to think now to be it to be at Opus Twenty Number Five, and to have been so blown away by this, I have kind of been uh, still kind of ignorant of of the later quartets. If this is the trajectory that he is headed down, and he kind of continues on this path, then the level of genius that he must attain for his late works is just incredible. Well, all I can say is wait till you get to Opus 76. Well, that's what I keep hearing. That's kind of the, you know, the, the 50s and 70s. And I believe he himself said of, was it, what's the next one? 33? Commented 33. Opus 33 wrote, was, was something completely different. Different way. Yeah. I, I have a I have an essay that, that, that collects that information on Opus 33. And uh, a lot of people consider, I mean, it's been for over 100 years, uh, if you ask a musicologist, well, when did the classical era begin? They will say Opus 33 of Haydn. Huh. Now, uh, I have to tell you, in all honesty, I don't, I don't buy into that. <laughs> However, it does show you what a landmark piece of music that was. Sure. And uh, it, it, it provided guidance for a lot of other composers. Uh, Mozart directly modeled his Haydn quartets after Opus 33. Right. Uh, and uh, for, for example, so anybody who was influenced by Mozart was influenced by Haydn. Oh, something uh, to Haydn. Yeah, Beethoven was channeling Haydn when he wrote Opus 18, but a Mozart too. Speaking of your, the you mentioned kind of the, the four guys, you know, in the, the, the guys getting together on Saturday and playing. I seem to remember reading somewhere that Haydn, Mozart, Carl von Hall, von Hall and Carl Dittersdorf. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, got together. Uh, what a what a group of people that is. I uh, I have to say that's four of the premier composers that were alive in 1783 or 84 when that took place. And what happened to Dittersdorf? Did he? <laughs> what? Because um, just I don't know how I came across it actually, but I I, I heard his his first string quartet must mm -hmm. have been a, a year more ago. And I wrote about it here recently. It's an incredible work. Um, he also wrote something like over a hundred symphonies. Why does no one know his name? Well, and, and this is one of the mysteries of the uh, musical canon, that, that invention of the 19th century that decided somehow, and uh, you can say arbitrarily, I believe it's arbitrary, that uh, this composer deserves in and this composer doesn't. And uh, uh, perhaps 
and I, I would just this is merely speculation on my part, but you know how you felt like Haydn had such a large oof that it was difficult to get a you know get your mind around it. Other composers, Von Hall and, and Ditters are good examples, uh, had the same size, uh, same amount of works credited to them, and, and uh, I think you had to be extraordinary to get all those works put in there. Haydn was so extraordinary that he gained admission despite the fact that he had a lot of words, probably because nobody could point out any that, that weren't deserving. Uh, and maybe Ditters does have some. I mean, the only thing he's known for today is uh, his opera, uh, Sing Singspiel, uh, Doctor and Apothecary, which, which was a, a famous piece in its day and, and uh, probably still is. But... Um, he was, you know, that brings us back to the 1750s. He was one of Haydn's best friends when they were they were roaming around Vienna back in those days. And uh, he, he, they used to go out partying at night and they, they'd play serenades out in the street. They were uh, a <laughs> team, you know, st uh, street uh, musicians. So Haydn would go and play at church in the morning and uh, uh, then he'd give lessons in the afternoon and then he'd go out partying and serenading with ditters in the evening and their other <laughs> friends. And then he'd go home and he'd write music all night. And uh, then, then he'd do the same thing the next day. He was a single-minded person. And uh, so, so they, they were, you know, had a very common background. Uh, ditters got a, a boss job before Haydn did and, and moved off to Romania or the far oh. side of or something I, I can't remember where exactly he wrote a fascinating autobiography and, and I've been meaning to pick it up for quite some time I've read several quotes out of it but he huh. has a very interesting perspective on Haydn you know I mean that, that was his old bud and uh, he has a different point of view about Haydn but he wrote several highly complimentary things they kept in touch for years highly complimentary things about Haydn. You know, he used to send him these clippings out of Berlin newspapers and say, look what they're saying about you. You need to, <laughs> you need to fight back. Uh, you know, these guys don't know what they're talking about. And, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, they were, they were good friends. I greatly enjoy uh, Ditter's music and, and Von Hall's too. Von Hall was an excellent musician. And, he was uh, a student of Ditter's, right? Is that correct? Is that uh, correct? I don't. I don't remember that, but I won't say that it's wrong. They were associated early times also. Okay. Uh, and, uh, but uh, Playel, for example, was a student of Von Hall before he was a student of Haydn. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, he started out, uh, I mean, he was like eight or nine years old, and he started out as a student of Von Hall, and then they, they moved him out to Esterhazy, and he lived with Haydn for a few years out there. Was it Pleyel who also wrote a, a, a frightening number of quartets? I, I thought my impression was it like 70. Yeah, 70, I think. And um, I think about a of them the other day, of, of three of them. Uh, he wrote in the French style, uh, Cator's Concertante. Uh, and I, I got three of them because he wrote them in 1792 for the London concerts. One of my one of my amusements is reenacting concerts that when I have a listing of what was played. Interesting. The London concerts are fascinating. And so, Ditter's door or Ditter's, yeah. What I was gonna uh, about him. My only 
my only so far kind of experience with his with his music is the the first quartet and it's a work that is oh what is it uh, also what 12 15 minutes something like that um mm-hmm. instantly charming compelling enjoyable but it's also not saccharine very intriguing to hear the other five quartets i believe that's also one of six is that correct i think his sets had like quartets and a quintet in them you know oh, okay like like that they were mixed genre but but compelling and and interesting then then i guess i never thought of him as perhaps a resource on on getting to know haydn better oh yes absolutely i i would i if you if you would like to hear those i would recommend a cd to you uh, there's a there's a group called the Revolutionary Drawing Room. They are actually a period instrument quartet. They're quite brilliant, and they recently, probably late last year, released a CD called A Viennese Quartet Party. And uh, on that CD are quartets by Haydn, Mozart, von Hall, and Ditters, and the, the story of uh, of that quartet party. And, uh, huh. you know, that all comes from Michael Kelly's diary, uh, where he, he talks about one night he was a guest there, and uh, he talks about the other people that were at that at that little party at Mozart's house, and uh, and then the players, and, uh, you know, they Dude. sat around, they played quartets, and they ate dinner and partied. <laughs> to me, I, I'd love to have been there, you know, I'm that's sure. just sort of that my imagination conjures up when I think about string quartets in the 1780s. That's why, you know, that's just like the sitting around the living room on Saturday night uh, scenario. That's a realistic scenario. I mean, that's what quartets were. And and they were for, you know, they were for the musicians. If there was no audience at all, the musicians would get as much enjoyment out of playing them because this was music written for them. And and so then if uh, – I can't remember who it was made the statement that getting to know Chopin, for example, you have to listen to the mazurkas, kind of his mm-hmm. most intimate sort of – is that the case for Haydn with the string quartet then, intimate, personal? Oh, I, I would say Stop. that. I would say the, the, the string quartet is is his personality. But let's – just yeah. just for a minute, the other Haydn, Michael. Um, ah. <laughs> what about him? Because he did. He I has like plenty of symphonies, and he did. I like Michael Haydn. I'm I'm a big fan. Vastly uh, underrated. I've got a lot of his works. Uh, his string quintets are especially nice. And you know, uh, Mozart was his assistant there in Salzburg. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Uh, yes, he was. Yeah, uh, he played. He was the organist when he came back from Paris. Remember, he didn't want to come back from Paris, and Leopold uh, flogged him <laughs> by, by letter over and over and over. You got to come back. I got you a job. Right. His job to be the organist, but but uh, Michael Haydn was the Kapellmeister, and um, so so basically Mozart worked for him. But they got they were very good friends actually, and uh, uh, you know Mozart really respected Michael Haydn's writing, and uh, even Leopold did, which is saying a lot because he didn't respect much uh you know i mean he was he was iconoclastic but yeah uh you could you could fairly say that that michael had uh, i've seen it said had more talent than joseph he just was dedicated otherwise 
uh, his main his main output was Catholic masses for the Archbishop of Salzburg. Did he have a requiem as well? He did. He had he had two or three of them, but oh, okay. the one he wrote the C minor one he wrote when the first Archbishop died, Sigismundo, I believe it was in 1772. He died, and then Colorado um, took over that job. But that that's a, just a brilliant work, and he did it in virtually no time at all, you well, know, because well, the funeral's next week. <laughs> Got to have sure, something right. to play. And uh, that turned out to be uh, Mozart took it as an inspiration, you know, 20 years later uh, when he wrote his own Requiem in D minor. Right. A very nice piece of work. I highly recommend it. He also wrote, and Leopold uh, uh, wrote a letter to Mozart about uh, – I just came back from mass and it was uh, one that Haydn wrote uh, and, and it was all, there's no strings in it. It's all, it's all winds and, and it's an oboe mass. It's for like <laughs> six oboes. It's the most brilliant piece of work. You, you really need to listen to it. The Gloria in it is, is tremendous. I don't know huh. if you're into church music. Uh, I, I was not, uh, it didn't jibe up with my, my moral compass, but uh, right. I got that because the music itself you know the church was the the other big sponsor of music in those days yes, it was either exactly. the church or the aristocracy and i couldn't see shutting myself away from half of the music that was ever written just because i didn't of the time sponsor you know how does the the work the output of of michael haydn um reflect or differ from his his brothers. I mean, there. I imagine there had to be some kind of sort of sibling rivalry going on between them. Well, really, I don't see that. Uh, yeah, not, not rivalry in that sense. I, I, they were they were very very close, given that they uh, were separated by what in those days was uh, you know Salzburg to Eisenstadt was a considerable distance. You know, for us right. it would be a day's drive, but. Uh, you know, and they, so they didn't get to see each other very often, but they were very close, and uh, I think they were very supportive of each other. And are their styles similar? Or did they kind of develop along different um, paths? No, I think stylistically they're very similar. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, a lot of times uh, works have been confused. Michael's works that are just signed Haydn. You know, back in the in the late 18th century, early 19th century, people thought, well, I generally speaking, customarily, the older brother, if you're only going to call somebody by the last name, the older brother would be Haydn. Would be the, one. the other one would be Michael Haydn or whatever. You know, I'll admit that one of the reasons why I feel like I maybe didn't give enough attention or time to Haydn was because everyone knows his name. The same reason I got around a little bit late to Beethoven. Um, I'll admit that one of the things that I'm interested in is uh, neglected or underrated or never heard of composers, you know, in kind of the classical version of the indie music scene. I read an article uh, that I brought up to Mike, and he had some very interesting things to say about it. I was curious to get his thoughts. I ran across an article that said that Haydn is the most, what is, I believe the word he used was underappreciated composer in history. 
I agree with that. I've got I've got somebody that I've been talking to here lately that's, oh, no, Hayden's uh, receiving his just due now. You've got nothing to complain about. I'm like, <laughs> you know, everything that came since, since <laughs> death is, is due almost directly to him. To him. Uh, you know, everybody, everybody, you know, it's all while I followed Beethoven. Well, who, Beethoven wasn't born out of nothing. <laughs> right. You know? He and, followed somebody too, and that's kind of the approach to the article. I I, I cannot remember who it was. It was Kenneth Woods or, or someone who said, "Oh no yeah, matter, Kenneth Woods." Uh, yeah, said no matter how much you appreciate the Haydn symphonies, you don't appreciate them enough. Yes, and and that would that would have been Kenneth Woods. I remember reading that. And then I wanted to ask Mike a question about the earliest. We had talked about the earliest of the Haydn symphonies and the quartets and things. Um, at the time of our discussion, I was preparing to, to post five articles on the Haydn, uh, some of the other early Haydn symphonies. Um, they were mixed up numbers from kind of the, the orders actually from Mike's website. He had put them in chronological order, not the orders like six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They kind of were jumbled around. And I told him I felt a little bit, maybe that in the articles I didn't do them justice because they just seem so simple. So am I missing anything? How should I listen to these? All I would ask, all I ask of anybody is that you approach music on its own terms, that uh, something like early Haydn symphonies are not comparable to anything that came afterward. I mean, they just don't, they don't stand up to the comparison and, but compare them to things that were happening at the same time to other person's symphonies or to other person's music in general. There's a lot of bland music written in the 70s <laughs> uh, be because people didn't know where they were going. Baroque uh, and polyphony had lost, outside of church now, had lost its its gloss. The public didn't want to hear it. The, the, the patrons that paid the money didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear something else. They wanted Gallant. Yeah, you know, and, and okay, well, Gallant, but Gallant doesn't have a lot of satisfaction for somebody like a Haydn that, that that wants to put something into the music more than, you know, just stringing some notes together. He wants more than that, so he's going to take that as a base and build on it. And uh, you know, if you <clears throat> a good example of things that uh, Haydn wrote in the 1750s are the organ concertos. Uh, he wrote, I don't know, half a dozen of them back then. And and you compare them with other people that were writing organ concertos at the time. Like, Wagenseel is famous. He was the uh, court composer. And he, that's what he did. He wrote that sort of stuff. He was the teacher to the empresses. He, he was uh, uh, Marie Antoinette's music teacher. Okay. Oh, wow. And wow. Uh, he, was, he was, that was what he did. But you compare... Uh, uh, Haydn's with with his, and you know Haydn's a young guy, but uh, I find them to be superior. And uh, even though Wagenseil's are good, I like them. But you know they're holdover from the Baroque, and uh, he he was trying to adopt the Gallant 
idiom, but he was struggling with it. Whereas Haydn was at the right age. He was in his early 20s and he was the right age to be taking new sounds in music and, and doing something with it. Right. Uh, people criticize his concertos. They say, well, you know, they sound kind of primitive compared to Mozart's piano concertos. Well, Mozart didn't create his piano concertos <laughs> of thin Out air. Of nothing, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody needed to invent the classical concerto, and people like Haydn and Dittersdorf, who who wrote a bunch of violin concertos in that time frame, so early 1760s, uh, they were inventing the concerto. So, so yeah, there's some old stuff in there, uh, you know, some old sounding in there, and 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 some very what would have sounded extremely modern to the people in the 1760s, you know, sure. different modern and stuff like that because they hadn't heard Mozart yet and uh, you know that's the sort of thing if you approach it with your mindset that's one of the reasons that I feel I'm blessed to not listen to later music (laughs) I don't have that uh, this huge burden of of, uh, late 19th century early 20th century which believe me I'm as big a Dvorak fan as anyone but uh, you know, I, I have that out of my head. I haven't listened in six or seven years to anything written after Schubert's death, I would guess. Much of Schubert's early uh, quartet work was kind of for him and the family. It was, absolutely. It was a family stuff. He wrote, his father was a player, his brothers were players, and, and he wrote quartets for the family to play. Good stuff, too. Uh, it I is. It, it's there's something about his um what is it the so the the first two is opus was it 18 is number one um, yeah 18 i think yeah something that's you know it's like it's not death of a maiden obviously but there's some there's a quality about it that is so melodic i don't know something about it that that, that is incredibly appealing yes his work is so personal and uh I love Schubert. I mean, to me, he was the last great composer. I, I, <laughs> I know that's <laughs> radical. <laughs> and his trajectory of being only what he he was seventeen ninety seven, right? And then he he was only thirty one years old, right? Thirty one when he died. Yeah, thirty one. And, and um, volume of his works. Uh, I mean, imagine if he had lived to be Haydn's age. You know, the whole the whole sound of music. Uh, through the, the the mid and late nineteenth century would have been entirely different. Entirely different. Of course, I never know that, but I bet he would have been a major, major player in in uh, in how music turned out. Uh, there might not have been a Wagner uh, or Bruckner or well, maybe Bruckner, uh, but uh, there might, that might not have all happened. You know, it, it might have turned out entirely different. Well, well, here's the thing. I have to say. Um, if if in a few months I haven't left my house and have neglected my job and haven't bathed or anything, it's because I've been obsessed now with, you know, Haydn recordings on, on period instruments and things from, from our discussion. Um, and, and if that's the case, then, then you're, you're at least partly to blame for this new discovery of all this, uh, this music. I've got broad shoulders. <laughs> okay. I, I can take the blame. <laughs> this has been, very interesting because I think perhaps part of it is is because again it was so long ago. I, I feel quite some distance with with Haydn, and so hearing discussions of of his development and his work and things is endearing. 
Well, uh, it's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. I, obviously, uh, I have a passion that I like to occasionally bring out. <laughs> and I would say he knows quite a lot about that passion. And as a fellow writer, I was curious to hear about his website and how he goes about writing it and what's actually there. You guys should go check it out. Yes, fjhyden.com. I try to write a, an essay every... Well, I was writing one a week, but they grew. And uh, <laughs> now I'm writing about 3,000 words in an essay. And wow. It takes, it takes about two weeks to put one together. But in early times, you know, I uh, I didn't have a plan. I, I, I was writing that to collect information uh, well, I need to write this down and maybe somebody will find it interesting. But as things happened and I got into an era now, like I'm in England now, and there's so much more information and I, I really want people to know this stuff. I think, you know, it's fascinating, uh, like how he got his doctorate at Oxford. Uh, you would be hard pressed to find all that information. And, and I, I searched out everything I could about it. And, uh, I put it all down there, and uh, I even wrote to the Bodleian Library at Oxford, and they sent me some stuff. Uh, I was delighted with that, you know. I'm I, sure. I was very gratified, yeah. And um, so, you know, that information is out there, and uh, I, I invite anybody who is is uh, got an interest in Haydn or in music history in general to uh, stop in and look it over. I uh, I try to make it readable and enjoyable for people, and uh, and that it is. Know, well, I appreciate that. I certainly do. And uh, the thing that I like is if you go and Google an image that has anything to do with Haydn, you're going to get a whole bunch of hits off fjhaydn.com. Well, I've noticed. Cause, yeah, cause which, that right. was how I found you. And it's wonderful. Really, really yeah. congratulations on being, being um, the, the Internet's beacon for Joseph Haydn. <laughs> well, uh, I certainly do appreciate that. It was not where I was aiming, but I'm delighted I hit that mark anyway. I will include your uh, link in all my information here. You guys can check out fjhyden.com. The title of the website is Hide and Seek, right? That, well, it's the title of the blog, yes. Well, very nice. Thanks so much for your time. Very well. Thank you, Alan. And that is going to be it for our conversation today. I really thoroughly enjoyed my discussion with uh, Mike McCaffrey. If you couldn't tell, go check out his website. If Even if you're not interested in Haydn, um, doing some of the reading and learning about the history is compelling enough that it makes sense of the music that might seem like something from so long ago, especially uh, with Mike's comments about how you can't compare it to things you know, like Beethoven or Chopin or even Mozart about how it is what it is, and it was novel for the time. So do go uh, listen to those things. If you haven't been able to tell, uh, I would like to start doing some more production stuff, incorporating music and sound bites and maybe other interviews and things into the podcast episodes to kind of increase the sound interest and production value and all of that. But I don't have a lot of time, uh, and this is a one-man show, at least from the production end. Um, what you heard today was Haydn's Opus 64, number 5, the string quartet called The Lark. Uh, it is... 
public domain from the Muse Open String Quartet, which may or may not be actual humans. In any case, the sound quality is great, and I wanted to incorporate it into today's episode because... It's Haydn. So uh, in the future, maybe look forward to some of those things. But what I really wanted to say was share. Um, I really enjoy producing this podcast and talking to people and sharing this stuff with you guys. But I would like for it also to have a wider audience. Uh, So if you know anyone who maybe might just be interested in listening to it or who might enjoy it, who doesn't know anything about classical music or who does, then um, do share it. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and fugueforthought.de and all of those things. I have some great episodes coming up, people who I have already spoken with or who will soon be speaking with about some very exciting things. So um, do share and leave a comment. Send me an email. I would love to have an email. Uh, Hi, enjoy the podcast, whatever. So let's stay in touch. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.